This week actually concludes Season 3 of the Standard Age podcast, so I'll be taking the next month or so off to focus on a new website as well as the release of several new products. I'm super excited about those, so definitely keep an eye out. This episode is yet another special occasion where I interview a friend I've known for over 20 years. We met in high school, and though we don't talk every week or even every month, when we do, we pick up right where we left off as if no time had passed. Bradford Filan is one of the people I think of when I think back on high school days, and the times always involve this mental playback of us laughing. He's a teacher in Manila, Philippines, but is temporarily in Long Beach, California for the next few weeks, so I was so happy to catch up with him via Zoom. He's an incredibly bright, thoughtful, compassionate person with a great sense of humor, so it was a no-brainer to have him on the show. He shares his experiences from working with the Peace Corps in Africa, he's lived in New York City, China, and now Manila, as I mentioned. Brad's life experience while traveling the world teaching and learning has shaped him into someone I consider to be one of the most cultured, open-minded friends I have, and I couldn't be more proud. I'm super excited for Brad as he's written his third book entitled When the Colors Started, which is due to release on October 15th, so mark your calendars. It's a collection of fictional short stories, each taking place in different locations and told through the eyes of different characters. I can't wait to read it, and perhaps after listening to our conversation, you'll feel the same. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Mr. Bradford Filan, welcome to the Standard Age Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time, dude. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you. I'm, I've, I've been looking forward to this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's great to hear. It's great to be here with you as a friend. And, and so, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, man. This is uh, it's a good time to catch up. Um, not having seen you in what I'm guessing is five years, six years since Bron and Emily's wedding. But um, I don't know. I always try to gauge it in reference to their children's age. <laughs> so I'm like, I think Jack is like, whatever, three or four now. Um, but anyway, it's been a while. It's been, it's been a minute since an in-person visit, but this is, this is a good face-to-face for sure. Yeah. You've been extremely supportive of Standard H. I thank you dearly for that. Um, I know you're a listener of the pod. What, uh, I mean, you know how these things jump off. So you were born in Virginia, though, right? No, I was born in Raleigh. Oh, you were born in Raleigh. Okay, for some reason, did, did you always used to rock like a Virginia Tech hat or like a Virginia? So I, I went to Tech. I went to Tech. So uh, no, I grew up. I grew up in Raleigh. Um, same same house. My mom is still in the same house I grew up in. So that's always been that's always been my first home. Um, then uh, <clears throat> my parents split when I was. Uh, I, I guess third grade, maybe fourth grade. My dad, he uh, he was in Virginia, in Southwest Virginia. Okay, so maybe that's what it was. Because in high school, I remember you talking about Virginia. Yeah, that, that's probably the connection. I, I ended up going to Virginia Tech. So so um, which which just a, a random side note. Emily also went to Virginia Tech, which is kind of right, crazy. right. Um, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, no, North Carolina's home, first home for sure. What uh, what did your parents do for work? So my mom, my mom worked at Meredith College. Um, she worked in the college um, college counseling uh, office. She was a secretary there, and um, just yeah, she worked there for over twenty five years, I think. Um, she's retired now, and then cool. My mom still plays basketball. Like that's her really. Yeah, she's she plays hoops. She's she's. Uh, I had no idea. That's amazing. She it's it's kind of crazy. We um we I've I've been I've been to see her play um, at senior games like national tournaments um, several several times. Like once in she went to she was at Stanford, so a few other places around. So yeah, that's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, at this point with with. Um, COVID, I, you know, I don't imagine they're playing much hoops, but my mom still, you know, she loves, she loves the sport. She loves all right. sports, football, basketball, whatever. Um, my dad worked for the U.S. Um, 
for the government for like 25 years in soil science. And then after, I mean, maybe even longer than 25 years. And then he retired from there and started a, started a farm in Virginia. And um, so now, yeah, so that's what he did for years after that. What kind of farm is he? So it started as a uh, tree nursery. So Fraser fir, um, Christmas trees, basically. Yeah, Christmas trees. And landscaping as well, but mostly the, the tree nursery. So he, so he had a farm. And, and so now, I mean, he's, my dad is 80. He's just turned 85. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, obviously he's not farming anymore, but he, he, um, he gave it all to the uh, educate the district um, in Virginia and so now it's an educational farm which is which is pretty cool it's probably one of the you know proudest things I know of, of what my dad has done like that's it's pretty cool that uh, kids from high school middle schools they go to the farm and they you know they they kind of see what it's like to, to run and operate a farm so he used to work for a time he worked for the uh, the SBI so he would do court cases and um, you know, he would, he would, he would be called on to say, you know, to study crime scenes. Um, so he did a, a little bit of that, but then he also did outside of SBI working, you know, for North Carolina government. So, well, that's cool, man. Like, what were you into growing up? Cause we met in high school. So like, what were you doing elementary school, middle school? I know you played basketball. Um, I mean, honestly, elementary and middle school is just kind of a blur for me. And uh, I don't know, I guess, I guess we all kind of have things that we latch on to or recall more fondly or more vividly. Uh, I mean, basketball has always been the thing that, that that's kind of what I did growing up. Yeah. I played baseball too, but it wasn't really my, my thing. Basketball was, I mean, I would spend hours and hours and hours in the summertime, you know, like the Raleigh heat, just in my cul-de-sac playing basketball. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, it's all, <clears throat> it was always that. And then high school, it was always that too. Like I just want to play basketball, and then and then, but you know, in high school, other things, other things, you know, become important friends, and you know, you know, so it kind of changes. But right. yeah, I don't know, man. Like elementary and middle is just kind of a blur sometimes. You know, it just I don't. It's interesting. Don't much. Now, were you always a were you always a hip hop guy? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I always, always into hip hop. Um, Probably middle school, start you know middle school and high school, and still listen to all uh, hip hop pretty much. Um, Do you remember your first album that you bought, like your first CD? Given our age, what was the first CD you bought? Definitely Bone Thugs and Harmony. No way, that was your first CD. Yep. Now, what was that? What was that purchase like? Did you ride your bike to get there, or did you? Did your mom take you to the store? No, I, it, it must have been. I must have been riding with a friend to the mall. I mean, it, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure it was at the mall. I'm sure it was, it was one of those where like, Hey, we're, there's nothing else to do. We were always at the mall. Right. And so, right. Uh, yeah. Bone Thugs and Harmony. I think Coolio. Um, Gangster's Paradise. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what about you? I mean, first, first, first CD first. Oh man. My first album was Pearl Jam 10. Hmm. I rode my bike to the CD store. It was, um, what was that one at Waverly Place? I can't remember. A CD Superstore, like something like that. I can't remember what it was called, but um, yeah, I rode my bike. It was Pearl Jam 10, and still, to in my opinion, one of the best albums ever. Like, it's, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a classic. It's good. Yeah, it's classic, right? So many good tracks on that album, man. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So, but you played JV, right? Our freshman year basketball. Yeah, I played JV um, ninth grade nine and grade 10 and then um grade 11 I was I got cut I didn't I didn't play I didn't play grade 11 and senior year I played again on, on varsity and we had we had a really good squad um was that coach Dunn coach Dunn yep coach Dunn what do you remember most about coach Dunn he was just such a personality I remember he was he was I mean coach Dunn I think you know what Man, there's so many. New- I mean, his pep talks, his but not even his pep talks. Just his his his, his talks with with the players. I just I never had a coach that just kind of talked to us like we were like he was one of us. Um, but it was still in a way that we knew he was coach done. You know, but he had he just has this way with with um, 
as players, I think that that we were, we I think that there was the the vibe that we could we could talk about anything with him, and he would just be there to listen, and it would be all right. Um, he was also really funny. I mean, I I remember Coach Dunn. Yeah, uh, he he you know taught he could, well he was a PE coach right and so every I had him Friday mornings for PE and it was like weightlifting, and he would take he would take the school bus and we would go to Hardee's and get breakfast at Hardee's. He was like you know, I, just, it, it, I don't know it was just it, like for for weightlifting class you would go eat Hardee's. <laughs> we would load up uh, we would load up in the school bus I guess because you know the coaches also drove the school bus. So for those in California, that is Carl's Jr. Uh, <laughs> basically, that's right for that's breakfast. Right. Um, no, nah, but I, you know, Coach Dunn would always have these talks about, you know, how how do we feel before a game, being nervous or or after, if we if we lose or win, and 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 he would just kind of because he he also was a, he was a phenomenal player himself, and so he he had lived what a lot of you know what we were trying to you know to do. So I think that that. That uh, yeah, Coach Dunn is. There, there was a couple of years ago. I, I was in Raleigh, and there was an opportunity for me to connect, and things just kind of got messed up. I wasn't able to be there. But what was like your favorite subject in high school? Ah man, I, I, I don't think I really had a favorite subject. I mean, I, I know. <laughs> well, you got into tech, right, Virginia Tech. So you obviously were no slouch in the grades department. I mean, that's that's a tough school to get into. Yeah, I think I did pretty well. I mean, um, it, it's funny, like my wife and I, we, we talk we talk about this. Like I, growing up, I like I, I just I knew I was going to college. Like it wasn't it wasn't a question of like if it was a question of where. And so I think that, um, you know, growing up, I just had a foundation of education where I could do well. Um, did I enjoy it? I just, I just remember being caught up in and who's popular, who's, you know, a lot of parties. Um, sure. A lot of, you know, I just, high school to me, I, as I re- recall it, seemed to be a lot of that. I was more concerned about that than schoolwork. So when I think back on high school, I'm like, well, what was my favorite? I don't even know what my favorite subject was. To be honest, I wasn't a big reader or writer, really, until college. I mean, I went to tech, and I think I thought I was going to be going to architecture, engineering, and, and um, you know, I, got, I had a... Um, an incredible professor, a few really profound professors that that stuck out to me. And I was like, wow, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try English. Um, And one one teacher was, um, she was from Brooklyn and she had this really, she had this, um, she was big lady and and huge, huge amount of red hair. And she was just like, just a fiery teacher and really uh, just passionate about English and literature and, and, and writing. And I had another professor who was, such a like from this like from the rural you know she had such a thick accent and i just remember always talking about how it's not about how people sound it's about how people are able to write and i thought that was just a really cool way to look at anyway i got i got into english so i wasn't really even a big reader or you know like you said you mentioned uh, earlier talking about cliff notes i think i was i must have been the king of cliff notes in high school (laughs) but you know so um I probably though enjoy. I mean, I probably PE was the, my favorite class. <laughs> yeah, because you went to Hardee's. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> um, so when you say rural, you mean South? Like you had another professor that was from the South? Yeah, yeah. She she well, Virginia Tech, you know, is is uh, you go outside of the the school campus and and you get into the hills pretty quick, and and so yeah. she, you know, she was stereotypical hillbilly sounding you know like that was that was that was it um and yeah so yeah I, and, and i can't even recall those professors names which is, which is bad but but i had a lot of really good professors that had tech and english that kind of like pushed me to want to be an english major and you chose tech because you thought you were going to go into engineering because that's very much an engineering school isn't it yeah, I mean, it, it is, but I think, man, to be honest, I think I think I chose tech. I applied, I think, to three schools. One, it was like College of Charleston, NC State, and then tech. And, um, you know, I, I think um, I, think, I, I definitely wasn't thinking this then, but I think 
reflecting on it now, I think there was an urgency for me to just, I needed to just get out of town. I needed to just change my location. I needed to separate myself from, from my hometown. And, and so, you know, I think, I think uh, tech was ideal for, and I think that was really the reason. I don't think it was because I, I wanted to go into architecture engineering. I think it was just like a place that I needed to, I needed to just kind of shift my, my setting, I think. And that, that was, that was the one I came up with. I wonder if subconsciously that was closer to your dad as well. So that if you ever needed something like perhaps you had a shorter reach to somebody to lean on. Yeah, definitely. And then, well, yeah. And well, the other thing is, you know, I had that in-state tuition, which was, <laughs> it was just, so you claimed residency with your dad then. Yeah, that's right. Ah, smart. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so yeah, that was, that was a part of it as well, for sure. So you ended up majoring in English then? I was a double major, yeah, English and Spanish. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, are you using any Spanish these days, or like, are you? Did you keep up with it, or you can you still speak Spanish? I mean, I can I can hear it. Um, I, I don't. I, I'm I'm way out, way 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 out of practice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, so after college, I I joined the Peace Corps, and um, I thought for sure that I would I would be in a Spanish speaking country, but I ended up going to namibia right southwest africa so so that was right after college that was right after college yeah so what was that decision like though i you know what i i i think that again um my my kind of uh desire to kind of change my settings and change locations i think i think i finished school at tech and and i think i was kind of right back where i started and and um yeah, I think that was it. I just wanted to kind of get away again. And my, my sister, um, she had, she was she had worked for Habitat for Humanity and she had gone to South Africa. And I just thought it was like so cool to hear her, you know, talk about it, her experience. And, and um, so the way the Peace Corps works, you, you, you know, apply and then they don't you don't really get to choose. They kind of send you an option and, and you either take it or you don't. So like I said, I was expecting like Spanish speaking, but they came back first with uh, Namibia and I was like, all right, let's go. So it was- Now, what was that experience like? What what did you learn or like, what were you doing mostly? It was incredible. I mean, it was, so I went there with a group of, I think we were about 40, 40 in total. And so you, we all went to, uh, you go to DC, you got to do all this training and all that. And then- uh, get there and you get six months of more training when you're in, in the country and you learn, you learn some of the language. Um, What's, what is the language there? Oshiwambo. So, okay. uh, yeah. And so, so uh, you train with a few of your, uh, you know, the, the, the core, right. And so the, we were in a small village. There was like 10, 10 of us volunteers, maybe, maybe eight. And then after that six months experience or three months experience, then you go out into, into, you stay with, you know, then you're, you're in the bush. So I was, I was pretty far out. I stayed, uh, I stayed in this, uh, I, I worked at this school called Onyeka combined school in Okamukwa. Okamukwa is the name of the village. And I lived with this family, uh, Tate and, a, and, a, and Tate is like father and Meme, which is mother in Oshiwambo. And they had, uh, it was a homestead. So, so there was uh, goats, cows, chickens, you know, it was a farm. It was basically a farm, uh, but they were subsistence farming, right? They're, they're, they're surviving off what they are producing. And so I, I helped there at the house. Um, you know, I spoke the language pretty well. I got really pretty good with it. Um, and then I, I, you know, I was the teacher, quote unquote teacher, but I, I'd never had any teaching experience. And I was definitely learning more than I was contributing in that regard. <laughs> You know, and so I started playing the drums, played the African drums there, uh, djembe. And um, I had this, I really got into drumming then. Um, I had, I, I met this uh, Congolese man who was a refugee. So he, he left the Congo and he ended up in Namibia. And uh, for him to make money, he, he, he taught a lot of expats how to, play drums you know it was it was kind of a high demand he was kind of in it he had this little niche a high demand niche i guess if you will and so his name was uh well it was michael but it was michelle and um so he i would go visit him every every couple weeks and uh oh man i just fell in love with the drum 
And, um, you know, one of the things he, he would always say is like, all of us have a, have a, a beat inside of us. And I just thought it was like super cool. And so, uh, yeah, I got, I, then I ended up, um, I, you know, found, found, found a girlfriend there and, uh, she was, she was, uh, a dance, um, uh, a dancer and a dance coach. And, and she, um, was really more than that. She, she was, she was helping orphan kids. And, um, so she had this group called Omaleshe and this, this dance group of young girls who were all, you know, from the streets. And, and I ended up playing drums for this group. We did a little bit of traveling and it was, man. It was, so, I mean, that's kind of a long winded answer, but, um, I learned so much. I was exposed to so much in that, that two year time. Uh, and, and like I said, I, I don't know what I contributed, but I definitely gained a lot of, of uh, just life experiences. And, and I think I, I was um, slapped with a lot of moments where I had to really, you know, build some empathy. And I think maybe that's what I was always trying to seek, you know, like how, how can I be more empathetic? How can I be, uh, yeah. I think that some of that kind of goes with that. So what was the training in that first three months, mostly just like language training? Yeah, pretty much um, language. And then I, you know, we, we probably had some, some counseling on how to teach, you know, but uh, right, right. that, that was, that was pretty much it. So coming back from Peace Corps, you know, it's almost like reverse culture shock for a lot of people when you go away to, especially somewhere like if you're in the bush in Africa, I would imagine, did you have running water? No, no, we had a tap. So we, yeah. we, um, we like communal, like community water, water tap. So we would, we would, we would fetch water like every other day. Um, yeah, absolutely, man. I remember coming back and like, uh, I was just like overwhelmed. I would be in the, in the grocery store, I like staring at the, the, the ketchup options. I'm like, what, you know, what's going on? Yeah. And, and, and then like, <laughs> Or like, I remember coming back and um, I visited my sister. She was living in Charlottesville and um, she's a big, big UVA fan. And so I think one of the first weeks coming back there, it was football season and like, it was like, you want to go to a game? And I was, I was just kind of, it was culture shock just being around that many, first of all, like people and then screaming people and then mostly like, mostly white screaming people. It was just, it was just a, a weird, <laughs> it was a weird, it was, it was a, yeah, just a, Definitely, definitely some culture shock. Um, yeah. A lot of moments, it was just kind of sad. I, I had to leave because um, I had an injury. It was, it was, it was, it's all kind of weird thinking about it now, but I, I, I ended up breaking my, I was a drummer, but I ended up breaking my finger. And so the way I, and, and so kind of backtrack a little bit, but I was going to stay in Namibia and I don't know if my mom knows this, so. But anyways, uh, I, I was going to stay in Jerome and for this, for this, this group. And, uh, so, you know, my, my time was getting ready to finish. And, um, but then like a few, probably like four or five months before I broke, I broke, uh, my finger, but the way the Peace Corps works, you have to get kind of, you have to, it's on their terms. Like, so whatever, whatever injury, you know, you have, they, so they, they made me come back to, um, to, to have the, you know, surgery and, and rehab and all that stuff. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was, it was so close to my time being done. It was just like, we're just going to consider you a, you know, return Peace Corps volunteer. So, so that, that all happened. Um, so they kicked you out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it was like, if I wanted to get that surgery, if I wanted to take care of myself like that. Right. Right. And, and so oddly enough, my uh, my good friend, best you know, one of my best friends, he, who I met in the Peace Corps, he had a, he had himself some type of injury, um, and and we ended up being on the same flight coming back, and it was it was weird. And he's also a writer, so oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's all kind of kind of a strange occurrence of of, of coincidences, you know, and maybe that's sure life is in a way. Well, I obviously, so I went away to boarding school my last two years of high school so that we kind of lost touch there. And I reconnected with you for the first time since high school, I think in New York, in Brooklyn. That's right. 
And I think you had like either just gotten a tattoo or like you were going to get a tattoo or something. Yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking about this earlier. Like I was like, cause, cause after the Peace Corps, I, I moved to New York. Yeah. That was, that was why I brought it up is like, what took you to New York? I remember, I was like, I remember being with Wes somewhere in, in New York. Now I lived in Washington Heights. I didn't live in Brooklyn, but okay, I, I remember us being in Manhattan somewhere, uh, upper or lower. And I can't remember, but yeah, I was in New York city for uh, four years. And so I got a teaching degree with uh, Lehman college and I taught in the Bronx. I lived in Washington Heights, which is the, the Northern tip of Manhattan. And so shout out Marie Curie, Marie Curie school. Um, we love this school. It was a phenomenal, um, small school in New York city. You know, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, every time I've always said, like I, I worked in, in New York city, the first question, like people were like shocked or surprised, like, Oh, how was that? And like, it was actually amazing. That school was, school was amazing. It still is amazing. So um, I had a great experience. <clears throat> so you were going to school there first, got your teaching degree. Yeah, I was, I was in this, um, this program. It's, it's uh, teaching fellows. You know, there's quite a few. Where, so, so you teach while you get a teaching degree. I see. So um, class would be after, you know, I'm teaching and then, you know, school days out and I go to, go to take classes, you know, so. Sure. That was, that was a two-year deal, and I ended up being in New York for four years. Um, and uh, I met Jasmine. I met my wife there. So and she was teaching at <clears throat> she was teaching at the same building, but at a different school. And um, kind of you, you shared your story with with your wife earlier, and it kind of made me think about you know how I met Jasmine. Like I I'd kind of seen her a few times, and then well, I remember one day I was in. Uh, in Manhattan and I was walking, I was like, oh, is that, is that, I think that's who I think it is. I started walking down the hallway, the, down the, uh, down the street and she didn't see me, but I saw her and I just remember thinking like, that, that's the one, you know? And, and really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, I, I remember what she was wearing. I remember how she was walking and all that. And then like, sure enough, like I, I was kind of in the middle of a relationship, you know, bad, bad kind of breakup, not a bad breakup, but a breakup. And, uh, I was, I was kind of like, well, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to be next. And so I, I wrote her a note, uh, sent it to her, to her students and, uh, was just like, Hey, you want to, you know, go out for dinner one time. And, and, uh, it happened. And like, you know, sure, sure enough, like she had never dated a white guy. Right. So it was, uh, it was. So Jasmine's obviously an African-American woman, uh, never having dated a white guy. That's why you bring that up. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, she, uh, you know, she was kind of conflicted and she was like, yeah, <laughs> every day a white guy, she, she talked to her grandma and her grandma was like, you know, what's, what's the worst that happened? And, and, um, you know, so, um, we, we ended up getting married. So yeah, that's probably the worst thing that happened to her. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, that's amazing, man. Um, and the two of you have, pretty much moved all over the world together. So where can you give me the, like the rundown of the countries you've lived in? <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so she, she had, she had studied abroad in Ghana and, you know, so I had my experience in Namibia and so she, she, her school situation was, was a little bit different. I think hers was a lot more stressful. Um, but both of us, we just kind of had the, the travel bug. Like we were just kind of ready at, you know, when we were together a few years in New York, we, we would always like, we traveled to Jamaica. We actually traveled to the Philippines. Traveled wow. all over. And so we had this, we had the travel bug and then, you know, we were kind of getting burned out on, um, you know, teaching. And I, I considered maybe trying to go into physical therapy and she was thinking about going to law school. And then, we, and then, so we just so happened, uh, a friend of mine was talking about international school teaching. And I was like, well, what's that? And then there was this job fair. We ended up going to the job fair. And just to try it, just to see what was, it was in, it was in Boston. And, uh, we, we met with, um, the director of the school in Senegal and man, we just, we fell in love with, with the idea of it. And we're like, let's try it. So we went to Senegal we lived in Dakar, Senegal, uh, it's West Africa for, we were there two years and then we got married and then, uh, we, we were there two more years. We were there a total of four years and it was a phenomenal, it was a great experience. It was before kids. So we, I mean, literally in Dakar, like 
you can go see all types. You can go see blues, jazz, hip hop. You can see, you know, all types of music. The, the music out of that country and that, well, that part of the world is just amazing. <clears throat> right. And that was the perfect time for us to be there. Food, I mean, we love Senegal. It was, it was, it was the perfect time for, probably, it's probably one of my favorite cities of, of all places I've traveled. Um, so you get, you know, definitely highly recommend it. You, know, you can surf there too, man. Good surf. Yeah, I remember you were you were inviting me to come check out the surf there, and I was like, "Man, that sounds amazing!" And at the time, I think I was making sixteen dollars an hour, so <laughs> that wasn't happening. Right? But yeah, man, surf surf there is great. I, I surfed a few times, but it's I'm not uh, I'm a very very novice. But but there's uh, I, yeah, it's it's great. It's a great city, great country. Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information, so check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Bradford. So where did you guys go after Senegal? So after Senegal, we, it, I mean, the way that like international teaching community, you know, the rollover, you know, people stay, some, some people stay a long time, just where we were, the, um, our, in our fourth year, kind of, there's kind of a mass exodus of, of people that we really, love or good friends of ours, a director who we, you know, he's a fantastic leader. He was moving on. And so it was just kind of one of those, that time we're like, well, maybe, maybe we should try other places. It wasn't, and, and, and we kind of wanted to leave when we, when it, when things were still really good, we didn't want to like leave when, when we were like tired and worn out. So right. we went to another job fair. This time it was in Thailand. And um, we, we had like, we had like seven offers from schools in, in, in Asia, in the region. Wow. We went to Beijing in China, the International School of Beijing. And uh, we ended up being there six years. And again, we fell in love with China. We fell in love with Beijing. It was, you know, great school, um, fantastic city, um, wonderful country. So, like, we, you know, traveled quite a bit in China. So does the does the program pay for all your flights and stuff when you go to a job fair, for example, or are you on your own there? Now, when we go when you go to the fair, you're you're on your own. Okay, I figured. Yeah, yeah, you're on your own with that. But then, like, once you sign a contract, they they most schools like you know they get you to your location. They help you pack your stuff. There's a shipment and all that. So, so then when you're there teaching in a place like China, it's. I th- if I remember correctly, weren't you teaching at a private school? Yeah. So these are, these are all like pretty affluent families and stuff. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very affluent families. Um, it's, it's, they're all private. The, the clients, right. The clients are, are parents working either with NGOs or the embassies uh, or, or, you know, private businesses. So it's an English school. Exactly. As, yeah. As yeah, a yeah, result. Yeah. It, yeah. it caters, it caters to the, expat community and also caters to the post national um you know it, but the, the deal is you students have to have dual they have to have a passport for it can't just be you can't just have a, a passport in china you have to have chinese and us or, or chinese and uk 
I mean, the, the, the bottom line is very affluent, but most of these kids are going to be going to universities in the States or in UK. So we're right. kidding that, you know, it's, it's the 1%, you know, pretty yeah. much of families. Um, yeah. And you had your son there. Yep. Khalil, he was born in, uh, in China and he's, he's three and a half now. Yeah. He was born, born in China. Yep. So after China, you went to Manila. Yep. Yeah. So, so, um, my, my wife has always been an elementary uh, teacher. She taught fourth grade, fifth grade, and then she got her doctorate uh, or in, uh, while we were in China. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, you know, she wants, she's always wanted to be a, a you know, edu- educating, you know, a leader in education. So, so she's, it was kind of at that moment, there was like, you know, some, some positions kind of opening and she just kind of threw her name in, was going to try. And she did did really well. She was offered a position of uh, assistant principal in, in Manila. That's where we currently are, International School Manila. Um, she's uh, one of the elementary AP uh, assistant principals, and I teach high school English there. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about your kids for a second. All right. Just because mixed race kids, we've got the Black Lives Matter. It's sad that it even has to take place, right? But what is that like being kind of a mixed race family and then your kids well khalil's three and a half and your youngest is how old ava is 17 months 17 months so clearly probably not understanding a lot right (laughs) you know but is khalil picking up on these things like what does this movement mean to your kids you think man i'm so glad you asked that um it's uh you know it's so march right this past march COVID kind of happened, right? And that kind of happened, right? And then so, so we had, we had the, um, basically our school is trying to figure out like all schools across the globe, trying to figure out like what, what to do. And so our school gave folks an option, like whatever you call home, you can, you know, cause now we're distance learning, right? So you can, wherever you call home, you can, you can go. So we decided to come back to Long Beach, California. It was just best for us. Um, my dad was like kind of having some health issues. And so I was a little nervous. Right. So we're going to come back here. And then, you know, May, George Floyd, uh, the death of George Floyd happens. And so, um, you know, it's, it, th- this movement is, um, I'll just tell like a little story here. We, we um, you know, obviously we were, you know, we didn't, it was just so, so overwhelming to, to see, to see it happen. And, and, we watched watched the funeral. We um, watched the wake, and um, we we made sure that our kids were there watching as well. Um, and I, I remember the the wake where uh, Reverend Al Sharpton spoke. Many many people spoke, but at the end of it, they they all stood in silence for the uh, eight minutes and forty six seconds. And um, and so we made you know Khalil. We 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 stood there, and, and you know he's asking questions. We're just like shh. shh Stops right. right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Of course. So, so, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's something that I, that, that I've, I've written, you know, I, I, I've written more about in personal essays. Um, and I think some of my fiction writing, you know, ventures towards issues of, of race, racism. Um, but this, it's, it's obviously, I mean, we, we, uh, we talk about this all the time, you know, what, what is it, what does it mean? You know, to, to, for me as a white father, for her as a black mother, for our kids who are mixed, you know, what is it? We're still trying to make sense of it. And, and um, you know, it, it's uh, and another thing that happened. We ended up attending one of the, the protest rallies here in, um, in Long Beach. And so it was actually right up the street from us because that's like we live like on the cusp of Long Beach and Lakewood Village. And so the Lakewood Village uh, City Hall is right up the street from us, but we're still in Long Beach, like technically. Sure. Anyway, we, we go to this uh, protest and, you know, we, it was actually like, we, we didn't actually know what was going on. We, we were kind of, uh, you know, with, with two, two little kids, we just always kind of in survival mode. But <laughs> one of Jazzy's aunties uh, called her and was like, hey, there's a protest right up your street, y'all should go. And so we're like, all right. So we drove over there, park, we get out, we're walking towards, and it's just, you know, kind of like what a lot of what you've seen on, on people are walking. It wasn't a huge one, but it was big enough. And as, as we're walking, somebody else is 
coming from it and they hand us a poster and it says like equal justice now and, and we're like oh cool so we got this or you know everybody's masked up because it's COVID and so we go to the protest and we stand there for a while I put Khalil on my shoulders and you know so we, we very much um, are are going to be parents that you know you know uh, that are involved yeah that are involved and so so then you know it's you know it's nap time so we got to get the kids back home and putting the kids down and then and, and, and our, our house is right on kind of a main street in Long Beach and, and we hear this noise outside and like Jazzy was said we we go outside and sure enough there's there's the rally is walking marching down our street and so um you know we're, we're like we we get our kids we wake them up and we're standing there on our on our, on our doorstep and and then there's cars going people people are looking at us we got our fists in the air and um you know it was a moment where like we all just, you know, teared up. Jazzy and I both, you know. Sure. We were just wrapped up in the moment. and it's just really emotional, yeah. Yeah, yeah. People were cheering us. And, you know, some people were coming by saying, we're doing this for y'all's kids. And just a really powerful, oh, uh, wow. yeah, powerful that's, moment. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting being like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, on, I'm, I'm, I'm able to see on the inside of, of my wife's family. Like I'm able, I'm, I'm able to get these snapshots and, and hear these stories and, and be a part of, uh, to just, to, just to be able so close to listen and, and to hear some of the real struggles that exist. And I think that, you know, even growing up, um, you know, playing hoops, I think uh, I, I, can, I can say, yeah, I had a, I had a lot of friends that were black and I played ball with, but, but I don't think I really understood their, their story, where they're coming from. And I think now having been, been exposed and, and just sharing, um, I, I just wish that more white people could, could um, just have some of the experiences and moments that, that I've had. And I think it would, it would open up the, these conversations that we're currently having or should be having um, you know, and, and not just with friends, but also at organizations and schools. Um, and so uh, it's, it's definitely a movement. And I think it's something that, that uh, it is sad that, that it has to, to be a movement, but this is where we are, you know, and, and uh, right. Yeah. Well, progression is very rarely comfortable. Right. You know, like it's whether that's in business, you know, you got to do a bunch of things you don't want to do or that you don't enjoy doing, you know, in your personal life uh, is funny. My wife and I were having this discussion last night where, you know, if, if you're having difficult times, not that we were, it just came up based on something we were watching. Um, it's th those are the times of growth. Right. And I think clearly this country, I feel like has never been more divided. Um, but as a result, it, causes these conversations and I feel like the progression of I think our generation specifically I mean like at least 50% of my closest friends are in mixed race relationships mm, yeah like that now that I think about it like I'm trying to think of like the people that I talk to most frequently and now even though you and I don't talk all the time right right we've been talking more, especially leading up to recording this. And, and it just, I don't know, man, it kind of makes me proud to know that like my friends and I mean, not to give myself a pat on the back or anything, but it's really just more about the progression of our society, I think, and feeling as if our society is comprised of like human beings and not white people, black people, Asian people, you know, Latinos. Right. Um, so it's a good thing. It's it's a great thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's really you know it's interesting you said it because because we 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 were talking we were talking about that as, as well that that most of the most of our closest friends uh, or my my most of my closest friends are the same. Um, it, you know, so yeah, it's um, yeah, man, it, it's it's it is I, yeah, and I, I'm proud too. I'm, I I am proud. Um, that, uh, but I, there's just a lot of work, you know, a lot of work. Yeah. I'm kind of curious if, and forgive the question if it's out of line, but 
how is the white black relationship kind of perceived looked at viewed in places like asia yeah no that's that's uh um that's a, that's a good question i mean um so i think well in china this and this is just you know our our experience i think that um there was less like shock value if you will for for me but more shock value for my wife i think that um she was often like you know people would just try to take a picture either with with her in it like knowingly or not right like uh. times they would you know just want to want to take a picture uh, with her um you know as if she was she was a you know Beyonce or something yeah (laughs) kind of and kind of same kind of the same for Khalil uh, for for our our son I think there was a lot of a lot of moments where people would just want to touch his hair yeah I was gonna say it's the hair man yeah 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 (laughs) he he does I mean sometimes I just want to touch his hair too it is (laughs) but um it's 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 its own organism right 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 right. (laughs) um in Manila I don't I don't mean I don't I don't think it's as as much, um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think it was my mom who told me, I think it was when my mom lived in Japan for three years when she was a kid, uh, military brat. And, you know, a lot of Japanese people would want to come up and touch her hair just because it was like very blonde at that point in her life. And I would imagine, well, for sure with Khalil, uh, like, because that's... It just looks like a different texture, you know what I mean? So um, that's really interesting. I really want to talk about your book that's coming out. Cool. Um, You, how many books have you written? So this is my third book. Third. Okay. Yeah. This is a short story collection. Uh, It's called When the Story, uh, I'm sorry, When the the Colors Started, sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah. When the Colors Started, um, uh, first two books were self-published. Um, so I, uh, actually in, when I was in Namibia, said a good friend of mine who, who was, um, he, he was already like doing a lot of writing. I think we kind of decided, Hey, let's just exchange stuff, you know? And, and I don't even know what I was writing about. It was just whatever. And he definitely had more, um, sense of what he was doing. Um, and then, you know, but I ended up writing a story on just longhand, you know, just cause that's, that's what it was. Um, like handwritten, you're saying handwritten. Yeah. On paper. Yeah. Just notebook. Right. And so I, uh, just didn't do anything, but kept it. And then I, I shared it with the, when I was in New York, I shared it with a friend and, uh, she was like, Oh, you should do something with this. And I was like, do what, you know, I didn't, I didn't know really what to do. So I just kind of kept working on it. And then, um, it was not until right before Jazzy and I were going to get ready to get married. I, I really wanted to like give my parents a gift and I thought it would be, and at that point I was like more into writing and trying to, you know, make some, like I said, make, make sense of it. Sure. So I, I really public, like I, I contacted this small publishing uh, company in, in, in Chapel Hill, uh, Chapel Hill press, a great experience. Um, they were phenomenal. They had like, you know, you, obviously you put money up front, some money up front. What does that cost? For example, um, I think it was about four grand. Okay. Which is, you know, I, you know, in hindsight, it seems like a lot of money, but then like I got my MFA and like, that was a lot of money too, you know? So it's like, sure. you know, you're going to pay one way or the other. Right. And in, in a way, right. I mean, I'm not saying that's not every writer's. So did you take out a loan for that or was that just savings that you had or? Yeah. I think at that point I was, I think we were doing pretty well, like with, with again, like international finances, teaching, yeah. Is is you get paid pretty well? I mean, so I and I I had been saving. I think I probably paid in three or four installments or whatever. So I was able to do that. Cool. And so um, yeah, I I really kind of wrote that first book. I wanted I wanted to kind of give that to my parents as a gift, and then oh, that's awesome. It's called Autumn Falls, and then um, now did you when you're working with that publisher, do you just hand them your notebook and they transcribe everything? No, well, at that point I, I had typed it, you know, I had, I had done a lot of more work. Yeah, man. That's a lot of time. How many pages was it? Uh, you know, it's, it's actually more of a novella. It's about 130 pages. It's not that okay. long for, 
for. But um, so, yeah, it, you know, I give them the document. They have a series of edits that they do. And it's, you know, they suggest certain things and then they, they come back with, um, you know, cover, cover ideas and, and all this. Um, and it, it was a great, fantastic, um, yeah, fantastic experience. And, and what was the, uh, what was the turnaround time? Uh, I think it was probably four or five months. I mean, it, it came out like about a, a year after we got married. So it's like a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And again, like, like, I think there's kind of a, in, in the like literary community, I think there's kind of a, I think the self-publishing kind of gets a bad rap and, you know, teach his own, whatever. But for me, it, it helped me like really immerse myself into writing in a way that I'm not sure I would have gotten into had I not put some time and money into it in that way. Right. And, uh, and so, so yeah. And then my, the second book was actually with the same company at that point though, I was in Senegal and, um, I, I was, uh, challenging myself with short stories. I'm not, I was, my challenge to myself was like, I'm going to try to write a short story every month. And at this point I was just writing as, as a lot, you know, it was before kids. And so, uh, I'm kind of a night owl. So I would, I would, I, I wrote, you know, every night. And, and so my focus, I, I wanted to write stories that took place in Africa, in Senegal, in West Africa. I didn't, I, I didn't you know, I, I, I was shying away. I didn't want this to be like a white man's storytelling in Africa. I was trying to really try, you know, trying to write stories that took place, but not from like the white male or American view lens. I was just trying to write stories that, that could, could actually you know, take place. So it's amb- is it ambiguous then? Like it just, it's not brought up. Uh, I mean, there, well, I mean, there are a few stories where, where, I mean, clearly it's all written in my voice. So it's still, you know, got. Right. But you know how like songs, like love songs, you may not know whether or not it's coming from a man or a woman's point of view or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hope, I hope that they come out that way. You know I mean? That was the intent. Sure. Okay. That's my question. Yeah. 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 And so, um, so that, that, that's, that book is called everything is inshallah. And a good friend of mine from Senegal, uh, well, he, he was, he's American, but he was also working at the school. He, he took, there's, there's pictures in the book as well. So every story is like tied to a picture in black and white. And, and so he did, he did that part of it. And so I published that with again, Chapel Hill press. Um, and I, and I, and I, you know, I haven't reread those works or, you know, whatever, but I feel like the, hopefully the writing got a little bit better. And then, uh, after that, I, I, I went back to school. So I went to University of Alaska at Anchorage to get my MFA, which is Master of Fine Arts with Creative Writing. Wait, did, wait, hold up. Were you living there or was it from... No, a distance, no, no, no. It's, oh, distance learning. Okay. I was going to say, I was like, this, uh, that glazed right over me if you were living in Anchorage. <laughs> no, I, I, I went there though, you know, for a few... It was the same time that Jazzy was getting her, you know, doctorate with education. So... Cool. Hers was completely online, but mine, I would, every summer, there's like a two week, two week deal where you have a residency. So every summer in that time, I, you know, I would, I would, this is when I was in China, living in China again, before Khalil. So all this was before kids. Yeah. And I studied, I, I studied under you basically every year you're assigned, you, you're given like one professor that you work under, mm-hmm. under, um, you know, Ed Allen and then, uh, uh, Carolyn Turgeon and then Joanne Mapson and, and really like that's where I grew them I've, I've grown the most as a writer for sure mm-hmm. so in that time I was still working on uh, short stories I, I, I tried worked on a novel but just didn't really work at that time so so this book though is uh when the color started it's another collection of short short stories but it's being published by Tailwinds Press it's completely you know I sent it this is the one where I like I've sent it out to a million presses and you know got a, a million rejection letters and then there's, there's the one they're like oh we love your book we want to publish it that's got to be a good feeling yeah 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 so forgive me but why is self-publishing looked down upon mm. well i think i think um i think people people are like well you, you got to pay to get it published you know that do people look at it as like, oh, you're just chasing all the profits for yourself and it looks more selfish or like what? Uh, I think it's more, I, I, I think with the 
and again, maybe this is a very kind of elitist, like literary view of it, but it's like, you know, your story wasn't good enough to get published. So you're going to publish it yourself. Oh, that's the default. Yeah. Mentality. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but, but I, I, I just, my, my sense is that there's kind of a, I, I kind of like look down upon a self-published book. Um, but again, zone, I mean, I don't, you know, so if it's of any value, a publishing company would appreciate it, thus publish it. Right, right. Or, or you, you go the other way and, and, you know, you try to get an agent and the agent, you know, seeks, seeks publishing for your book, you know, but right. for you to put money in your own thing is, you know, I, I think it's, it's for some, they kind of frown upon that. I, I, I would guess. What's a relationship with a, an agent, like you pay them 10% of whatever you get paid, kind of like a, you know, MBA contract type deal, or how does that work? Well, and that, and that's the thing. I mean, with this, with uh, this most recent, um, you know, I, I, I only, I get 50% royalties, you know, it's not even like, it's not, you know, it's, it's not that much better. Whereas with the self-publishing, I get hundred percent, you know, so it's, um, I don't, you know, it's, it's, I guess if you're with an agent, I think typically agents probably take 15% of whatever it is you make. So like, I mean, bottom line, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a lot of money and, and I mean, if you're at, if you're Stephen King, if you're, you know, at the top, you obviously you're, you're, you're making money, but you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I actually, to be honest, I, uh, I'm trying, I'm seeking uh, representation for, I want to try to get an agent at this point. I, I've recently finished a novel. And so I want, I want to, I'm going to try this route this time to see if I can get an agent and see if I can, you know, get, uh, see if there's, if there's more of a way to get my work out there in the world through, through an agent and we'll see. So also like, and I, I know nothing about writing a book or publishing a book obviously, but like, aren't advances given at times as well? Is that, is that only predicated upon what relationship you already have with that publisher? Yeah, there's, there's definitely, again, that, there, there are definitely advances. Um, and I think that's when, when, when people, when artists, when writers get agents and the agents, then they seek the various publishing companies. It could be Simon and Schuster. It could be whichever, like penguin or whatever. Yeah. So, so then it becomes kind of a, an auction, if you will, where like the, the big publishers are like, Oh, we like this book. We're going to, we're going to give this deal. Oh, we like this. We're going to give this deal. And it's like, the, the, there's typically an advance when it gets to that level, like that tier of, of the publishing industry. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's the, um, advanced, um, you know, you may get this much up front because they know that it's going to make this much because they have so much money already invested in the company that they can advertise it. They can get it into Barnes and Noble. They can get it, you know, so, so short, I guess, long answer. Yeah, absolutely. Advances are there with, with um, this most recent book that is coming out. It's, it's an, it's an indie press, you know, so there's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, the writers doing the, that grunt work, you know, getting, you know, it, probably you've experienced similar things, right. Where you're, emailing people directly, Hey, check this out. Um, support me here and there. And, and that's kind of where I am with, with my writing as, as well. Like, um, doing kind of the, on the grind to get people to, to read it, you know? Yeah, for sure. So with this new book, it's a physical book, correct? Is it an audio book as well? What's the distribution like? No, there's, there's no audio at the moment. We did actually, we, we, I talked about that with the editor. Um, she was a little cautious of, of, of it because there, there's so many different voices. Um, for example, some of the stories, um, there's, there's, there's one story in particular, it's called Spread, and um, it takes on the voice of a young black woman uh, in LA, uh, and she um, is basically the narrator, the narrator of the story. Uh, and another another story um, is a young. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's called why well, the title is so long. Um, it's the title I can't I can't even think of off the top of my head right now because it's it's something like um, 
letter to my English teacher while I had too much time after I took my SAT exam. Oh. <laughs> so it's, it's the voice of this young uh, 16-year-old girl, and she's writing this letter to her teacher in which she reveals some, some things that happened to her and her friend that, you know, and so I guess the point of the editor was like, you know, you have such a wide variety of voices. I'm not sure that one person, you know, I'm not sure how comfortable you would feel, you know, telling, reading these, um, but it's still, it's still on the table. Like uh, we're still, gonna, I, I haven't, I had an idea to maybe try to get, cause I, you know, as I was writing these stories, I, I sent some of my friends, always Jazzy reads everything that I, you know, she's kind of my, my first editor, but then sure. I had quite a few friends that I would send stories to just to get feedback. And so I thought, well, maybe I could get, have people read some of these stories to record. So it's still, it's still kind of on the table. Um, but it, at the moment it, it's not. So it, it, what it, there are print copies and you can also get it uh, Kindle uh, and, and the Nook or whatever, whatever e-reader you use. It's on Amazon. Does, uh, and sorry, what was the release date? October 15. Oh yeah. Okay. So I thought it was coming up, um, but it'll be available through those outlets. Like you said, does Jazzy have a favorite story? Um, I, I'm sure she does. I don't know. I don't know which one I'll, I'll ask her. <laughs> but she definitely like, she definitely will tell me like when, when something sucks or when something not sucks. Or... Right. It's not her favorite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that's cool. So, how many stories are in the book? Fourteen stories. Fourteen. And what's the book called again? When the color started. Right. And then, cool. so the, the the title of the book comes from the last story, uh, in the in the collection, and it's a story about a young boy, a uh, young black boy. It takes place in Raleigh, and uh, his his mom is a a single mom. Um, he's a mixed kid, actually. Um, mixed race kid, but you know, with, 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 with mixed race kids, um, sometimes the default is, you know, you, you're, you're black first sometimes. And I'm not saying that, you know, again, this is, I'm not speaking about all mixed kids, whatever. Well, I th what I hear oftentimes, uh, and even through the mixed kids that I've like grown up with or gone to school with, it's like, you're not white in the white community and you're not black enough in the black community. Mm. Does that is does that fall in line with kind of what you're saying? Uh or not so much. I, I think I think it's more so like you're not white. Like you you know right. it, it's um you're 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 closer to being black than being white. I, I think mm. that's kind of, I think that's kind of the mentality of the default. You know, and again I'm not saying that that Right, right. This isn't gospel. Yeah. yeah. Right, 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 right. Um so 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 yeah, this this young mixed yeah this this kid he, mom is single mom but she has to work so it's actually the day of his birthday and she has to go to work she works at Marshalls right so she goes she probably knows my mom <laughs> my mom shops at Marshalls you know <laughs> is, is, are your folks still in Raleigh uh technically no they live in Pinehurst now okay so but the, they're still in North Carolina yes and not far from Raleigh but yeah. And it, yeah, so there must be a Marshall's close by, wherever. Uh, I mean, I was kind of joking. I mean, she used to shop at Marshall. I have no idea. TJ Maxx, Marshall's. My mom's a bargain hunter, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So, so what, what, when the mom is out working, the child protection services comes, right? Uh, but like the the twist is, in the basement of this old house, he has like this magical tree. And this magical tree ends up kind of saving, saving, saving his life, saving the situation. Um, so, anyways, that's the last story. It's called "When the Color Started," and it's based on that that story. Is the magical tree a nod to your dad? Oh no, it's not. It's not actually. It's uh, that's a really good question. No, it, it's um, it's actually it's more of a nod to uh, to Senegal in a way that, because. The, the the tree is is uh is is gifted to this little boy from an old neighbor who has to leave and he's not sure why he has to leave but the reason he, he keeps saying I'm, I'm just gonna go i'm gonna go to the motherland he just keeps saying that and he's like mm -hmm. what's the motherland and he's like it's it's africa 
So he has to, so it's the neighbor gives him this tree and he has has to leave. Um, that was a good question though about not to my to my dad, but uh, no. Well, that's cool, man. Well, I'm excited to read the book for sure. I have to get an autographed copy, of course. It's in the mail. All right, cool. Well, Brad, this has been fun, man. It's good to catch up. Um, is there anything else you want to promote, or not? do you have a website for the? Yeah, I do. I do have a website. It's uh, bradfordfiling.com. Uh, you can find all my all my works there. The Autumn Falls, everything is inshallah. And then um, also the the newest book, When the Colors Started. Um, there's also like uh, a, a blog where I've I've written some essays, personal essays again, you know, about about my experiences as a father of mixed kids. Um, cool. And um, yeah, that, that's it. So thank you. I, I awesome, really appreciate it, Wes. Thank you for um, the work you're doing, man. I think um, your podcast is excellent and I, I love Standard H merch. You know, I got it, you know, so, uh, so thank you very much. Yeah, man. I really appreciate the support. Happy to support you in any way I can. Um, you know, the feeling is mutual. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you guys are going back to Manila, right? Pretty soon? Yeah, a couple of weeks. Uh, I think two yeah. weeks from now. Okay, cool. Well, I'll be up your way in the next couple of weeks. So maybe we could uh, grab lunch or something. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Sounds good. All right, brother. See ya. Peace. Huge thanks to Bradford for taking the time. Please mark your calendars to visit his website, bradfordphilin.com. That's B-R-A-D-F-O-R-D-P-H-I-L-E-N.com on October 15th. Like he said, When the Colors Started is also available on Amazon. Big thanks goes out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the use of their noise-canceling headphones. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you guys in about a month's time for Season 4. Take care.